As I was getting ready to come up here, I thought I better offer a little caveat here. I read a book several years ago, and I was too lazy to go back and get all my facts straight, and so I thought, I'm just trying to illustrate something, and I thought, what if there's like an English teacher who's going to consider this story a full book report and go back and fact check it? Uh, I am more concerned about the overall more of the story. I, I have some quotations from this book, and I changed them in a way that you would be able to hear, you know, in kind of modern English. So that's my caveat to our opening illustration. Um, there's a fictional book called uh, Gates of Fire. And, and it follows the story of a king who's put in a, a pretty undesirable situation. Uh, he, he gets words from his scouts that, that on the, the sea they're coming in is a large Persian troop getting ready to land near the borders of the kingdom of, of Greece over which he is the king. And the problem is that most of his military troops are deployed elsewhere. He, he knows he's going to be able to defend the city of Sparta where he knows they're heading, where they're heading, but he doesn't have enough time to get his full military troops back and ready for that battle. And so he begins looking for what he calls the 300. These are the 300 warriors of Sparta that he is going to send, and their mission is pretty simple. They just need to slow down the Persian army. And there's an understanding and an expectation that if you are chosen for the 300, you likely are not coming home from that battle. He chooses the 300. He sends them out. They do, in fact, delay the Persian army for the, the days necessary. And, of course, most of those who were in the war were killed there. He receives message um, that those 300 men have been lost. And he goes out and he finds one of the leading women of the city. And the king approaches her and he asks her a question. He says, do you know why I selected each and every one of those men? And she answered him saying what was commonly understood. She said, it was for their prowess as individuals at men at war. But the king responds by saying, no, I chose them not for their own valor, my lady, but for their women. For when the battle is over, it will be time to rebuild. And at that time, who will everyone look to? To you, to the wives, to the mothers, to the sisters, and to the daughters that have fallen. I see that your heart is broken, that you are full of grief, but if they see your grief, they too will break, and Greece will break with them. Because I knew you could bear it up, because I knew Sparta would stand, that's why I nominated you, lady, and those like you, because you are able to stand in the midst of this adversity. After hearing the words, the lady wept bitterly, after a few moments, she wiped her tears and then said, Those were the last tears of mine, my Lord, that the sun shall ever see. So he chose the men, not because of their ability, but he chose them with a the recognition that he needed some women who were strong, who would carry on after these men of war were lost. I'm going to need someone to check and see. My um, slide doesn't seem to be advancing here. If we could just make sure we're on the right window there. Perfect. Thank you. The story illustrates that great causes will demand different roles from different people, won't they? That there are the valiant warriors who will go out and they will sacrifice and they will give their lives. But when they do, there will be some living people left behind. There will be a grieving remnant and they will have something that they must continue to do in order to honor what was given in the lives of those who sacrificed. 
And probably already by now, you're beginning to realize there are gospel echoes in this story, aren't there? There's a recognition that as we've been looking at John 13 through 17, these are Jesus' farewell words. Jesus is preparing his disciples. In fact, John 17 is now the last chapter before chapter 18 is going to move very, very quickly into the events of the cross. And it is here that Jesus is realizing that, that he will die the valiant death of a warrior. But the disciples will have a responsibility to carry on a calling and a mission for them. And so it is in this 17th chapter that Jesus will pray. His prayer can be broken into three sections. Jesus will pray, um, and I'll explain the air quotes later, but he will pray for himself. He will pray for his disciples. And then he will pray for future disciples, those who come to believe through the work that the disciples do. So we're going to look at each of these sections of the prayer of Jesus. We'll read the first five verses of Jesus' prayer for himself. John 17, 1 through 5. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that your Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all people, to give eternal life to all of whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. We could summarize Jesus' prayer just quite simply saying that he is asking that the Father would glorify him. As we think about this word glorify, there's two ways it's used in John 17 and want to recognize how it's used. The, the, the way that we're most uh, familiar with, this is out of BDAG as a, a Bible dictionary. Uh, it, it defines glory as praise, to honor, to extol. And that's the sense we're most familiar with. Um, but there's also a second sense, which is to clothe in splendor or to glorify. Instead of trying to define this second sense of glory, which I think is what Jesus is praying for here, I want to I, I begin to illustrate it. it. It is, in fact, it's the opposite of what happened to Jesus um, in Philippians 2.7. Remember, Philippians 2.7 says, But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form. Jesus gave up the glories of heaven whenever he came to this earth. And so something was, was given up, something was undone, something was forsaken. So when Jesus prays to be glorified, he is asking to once again to be returned to his position of splendor. It's what Paul talks about in Philippians 2.9. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. And Jesus is praying once again that, 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 that the Father would glorify him to that position that he had. If you've ever seen the television show Undercover Boss, it can kind of illustrate this. It's a television show where a, a CEO will dress up in, in a disguise, go into a company, his company that he or she owns, and, and nobody knows that they're the CEO. And they're going to be taught and they're going to be instructed and they're going to find out how the company really works. But then the last third of the show, the CEO is back in his or her office the employee now comes in and realizes, oh, that person I thought I was training is actually the owner of the company, is actually the CEO. Those scenes where, the, where the, the boss is back in his or her own office, in his or her own environment, back with the authority to give raises and to hire and to fire, 
that's when they've been returned to glory. They've been returned to that position that, they, that was rightfully theirs from the beginning. And so Jesus asks the Father to glorify him. But why does he ask the Father to glorify him? That's what some people say Jesus in this, he prays for himself, but he prays for glory. He says, glorify your son so that, here's what he wants to do with that glory, so that the son may glorify you. And this is now using that first sense of extolling, of giving honor. In other words, Jesus believes that, that any time that, that he is lifted up, that God the Father will also be lifted up. It's like a swimming pool. When you refill it with water, you can't just fill the deep end or just fill the shallow end. When you put water in the pool, the whole tide's going to go up. And Jesus is saying that any time that his name is glorified, so also is the name of God glorified. And so Jesus' desire is that he would be glorified in order that so that the Father would receive his glory. That's a really important part of Jesus' mission. A really important part of his ministry that he would bring glory to God. That's also why, if you look at our church's mission statement, the very first phrase is this, bringing glory to God by. When we seek to give God glory, what we are doing is imitating the very part of the, the, the mission and the purpose of Jesus. So the first reason he asks for glory is that he knows that God will be glorified in it. But there's a second reason in John 17 too. He says, um, since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. In other words, when Jesus is, is returned to that position of glory, he will now have the authority that is necessary to give eternal life. Sometimes when we hear, hear the word authority, we tend to have a more negative view of it. Anybody with positions of authority tends to use that authority for their own benefit, for their own good. But notice, Jesus wants authority in order to do what? Authority in order to give. And he will have the authority to give eternal life. So he's seeking a return to his position of glory, not for his own sake, but for the glory of God, and so that he can be the one who gives eternal life. As he's talking about eternal life, Jesus gives us this understanding of eternal life. Is the eternal life is that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I think there's two important ways to understand knowing. Uh, the first is there's informational knowledge. You can get onto a Wikipedia page and get informational knowledge. Find out when a person was born, if they're still living, find out where they're living, you can find out who they've married, you can find out what school they went to, you can find out all those businesses. But after reading that whole Wikipedia page, how many of you would go around and say, yeah, I know Bill Gates? No, you don't know him, you just have informational knowledge about a person. But the other kind of knowledge is experiential or relational knowledge. Do you know how that person feels when the socks don't end up in the dirty clothes hamper? Do, do you know whenever they need space and whenever they need you to come close to them for comfort? Do, do you know what they need when they're scared and where they're, when they're afraid? When Jesus talks about eternal life as knowing God and knowing the Son, he's talking about this relational, experiential knowledge. To have life and to have it in its abundance and fullness is found in knowing God. And we get that pleasure of knowing God just, not just for this temporary moment, but for all time. Jesus wants his authority so that he can grant eternal life to people. And then verse 4, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth and finished the work that you gave me to do. One of the things that strains us is throughout the, um, the farewell discourse, 
Specifically, you can see it in John 17. Jesus will sometimes talk from the perspective of everything is finished. And sometimes he'll talk from the perspective that he's still in the middle of the work here. He is saying that he's finished what the Father's given him to do. And yet, what hasn't happened yet? The, the cross. What, what John is trying to show us is a different side of the Garden of Gethsemane wrestling here. Jesus knows that he will be obedient to the Father. He knows he will do what the Father asks him to do. So as far as Jesus is concerned, the cross is as good as done. Because that's what the Father has asked him to do. So he will here speak in the past tense as if it's something that has already happened. And when he is glorified... He's then finished the work that he's been given to do. But that's why Jesus is going to transition his prayer because when he finishes his work, guess what happens for the disciples? It's time for their work to begin. They are the grieving remnant who are now handed upon the mission that is to continue. So it's then in John 17 that we find that verses 9 and following that now Jesus will pray specifically for his uh, disciples. I... There's a, there's a recognition of that translation uh, transition in verse 9. I am asking on their behalf. I'm not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. So he's showing us he's now praying specifically for the disciples. I summarize his prayer for the disciples, and what he asks is that God would protect them as they are working in the world. That's kind of the summary of this section of his prayer. And Jesus will say, and I am no longer in the world. Again, he's speaking in a future tense, almost prophetically. There's coming a time very near where he's no longer going to be in the world. But what's happening with them? They are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. And what's his request? Protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. There's this, there's this old phrase that says you can either prepare, prepare your children for the road or prepare the road for your children. I mean, if Jesus asked what I wanted him to pray for, I'd probably say, why don't you just pray that I don't have to go through hardship, that I don't have to go through suffering. Why don't you pray that I'd be in a situation where I wouldn't even need protecting? But Jesus, instead of trying to make the road easy, he's trying to ask that God would protect and keep and watch over his disciples in the hardship for which they are about to face. And notice specifically and intentionally what Jesus prays in verse 15. I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. There's an irony here. There's a balance here. And, and I don't know exactly where that balance is. But Jesus says, I don't want you to take them out of the world. And when we talk about being in the world, what do we often sing about? Look forward to, anticipate, expect. We want to what? We want to be taken out of the world. We want to be reunited with God the Father. And that's, that's good. That's wonderful. But Jesus specifically here saying, no, no, don't do that. You ever gone on a road trip with kids? And they don't want to be there. And they get in that phrase where everything's dumb. I don't want to see another dumb mountain. I don't want to see more and more dumb grass. I don't want to see another dumb McDonald's. I just want to go home. What we want to be sure, this is the balance, is that while we are given work to do in this world, that we don't just spend our whole time saying, I don't want to be here. I don't want to do it. I hate it. And we just complain our whole life as if God doesn't have us here for a reason. 
Jesus is saying, you are in the world for a reason. For a God-given purpose. And that purpose isn't to spend your whole time complaining, hoping that you'd get out of it. What's the purpose? What's the calling? That's what Jesus wants his disciples to realize. And I think there's a recognition that that transfers to us today. We are to have a certain kind of relationship with the world. The same kind of relationship Jesus has. Jesus says, I speak these things in the world. So where's Jesus when he's doing his ministry? He's in the world. And then he says, but I do not belong to the world. Now notice what Jesus says of his disciples. They are in the world, but they do not belong to the world. So God, where do you want me to be? You know what Jesus was saying? Don't take them out of the world. Because there's work for them to be doing. We are not in the world. We don't share the values of the world. We don't share the hopes of the world. We don't share the dreams of the world. We do not belong to the world, but yet where has he placed us? Right here in the world. For a mission, for a purpose. You can see this uh, again in John 17. Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, sanctify, I sanctify myself so that they also may be sanctified in the truth. This word sanctification is another one that we, we, we have to kind of understand. There's different ways of using this. We tend to think of this being about, you know, holy living and, and, and about right living. Whereas here, Jesus is talking about something different. It's borrowing from concepts from the Old Testament. Here's uh, Exodus chapter 28, verse 41. You shall put them on your brother Aaron and on his sons with them, and you shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them so that they may serve me as priests. That word consecrate is the word Jesus used with sanctification. To consecrate means to set aside for a purpose and a specific task. So Aaron and his, his, and, and, and his sons, a part of the, the, the Levites, they, they, they were set apart from the people for a very specific purpose to work as priests. And now with Jesus, when he's praying that he would, God would sanctify him, he set them apart for a very specific purpose and a task. Jesus himself says he has been sanctified. John 10, 36. Can you say that I am the one whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world? is blaspheming because I said, I am God's son. So Jesus knows what? He's been sanctified, set apart for a purpose. And what's that purpose? To be sent into the world. So when Jesus prays that we would be sanctified, he's saying, God, set them apart for a special purpose. And what's that purpose going to involve? It's going to involve us being in the world. We are going to be sent into the world for a specific purpose, a specific task, and a specific mission and ministry. So Jesus will say specifically, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. You ever see books that have like title like, what on earth am I here for? That's the answer. Because God's got some work for us to do. The grieving remnant has been given a responsibility. And so Jesus will then, as he thinks about these disciples and their work, and he's going to realize that this is a continuing factor, he will then pray for future disciples. And that for sure includes all of us. So let's begin reading here, John 17, verse 20. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one, as we are one. 
Jesus has two primary requests when he prays for future disciples. And the first is a request for there to be unity. You see that in these verses, that they may be one, that they may be one, that you may be in, uh, be in me, that they may become completely one. Jesus wants future disciples to be what? To be unified. Unity seems to be an extremely important value to Jesus and to God the Father. This passage can't answer all of the questions that we might have about unity, but there are certainly some key indicators of things that we need to recognize. And the first is this, that our unity is equal to the kind of unity that at least the Father and the Son share. And I think it's fair to add the Spirit in there. That, that there is within God Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and there is unity. But ironically, there's also a difference in God. God the Father is not the same as God the Son. God the Son is not the same as God the Father and the Spirit. They're, they're, they're three different persons, but with one mission and one will and one heart. So as we talk about unity, what we are not talking about is uniformity. It's not saying we all have to think the exact same thing. We all have to have the exact same personalities. We all have to have the exact same gifts. No, there has to be some diversity. But all that diversity needs to be used for a single purpose and mission. And so when Jesus prays for unity, that's what he's praying for and asking for of, of us, of the church today. This unity, of course, requires loyalty to Jesus. I mean, back in John 15, we recognize that Jesus said that, that I am the vine and you are the branches, that, that we need to be connected to him. So the, the very center of the loyalty, the, the very overlap that we all share is our loyalty to Jesus. So if anyone suggests a loyalty that's based on something other than Jesus, that's not something we can be a part of. We're unified on that commonality of our loyalty to Jesus. That unity will be seen in our love for one another. John 17, 26, So the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. As we look back at John 13 and John 14, Jesus had talked about the importance of loving one another. Our unity is going to be seen in the love that we share for one another. A fourth thing that we see about unity is that this will be a unity of, of fellowship. It's going to be seen in, in the ways that we interact with each other, in the ways that we treat each other, in the ways that we act. And, and, and I think that what shows that most clearly is the second thing for which Jesus prays. Um, and there's Jesus' ultimate prayer is not just for unity. Unity is a vehicle to get us to a greater concern for God, which is mission. So look at these two verses, uh, starting in verse 21 of John 17. So Jesus prays that they might be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be, be in us. So he's praying for unity there. God the Father, God the Son, we as a part of that. He says, so that. So he's like, here's why I'm asking for unity. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. So unity is not the end in of itself. Unity is like a flashlight that can shine out into the world to say, this is what a people who are joined to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, this is how they will live and love. Look at verse 23. I and them and you and me, so that they may com be completely one. And again, here's the purpose, here's the reason. So that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus wants us to be a witness to the world. And he believes that one of the key things that will differentiate us as Christians is our unity. Unity's always been hard for us, hasn't it? 
there was a former British officer who after the revolution said this of the Americans. He said, I sure hope that they can learn to govern themselves because there's no possibility anyone else will ever be able to govern them. Just getting a sense of strong individualism, strong convictions, and all those things are good, but those things can get in the way of unity. What does unity look like when if you hurt your feelings, I can just pack up my bag and go next door? Because you stepped on my toes and I didn't like it. What does unity look like if, 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 if you say something that I disagree with? I don't think that's right. And there's a lot for us to wrestle with here in unity. But the, the, the one thing that I find helpful and hope-filled coming out of this passage specifically is, what if we were to talk about unity not just in the context of doctrine, but also in the context of mission? In other words, what if we were to ask ourselves this question? If however I handle this situation was broad, broadcast on national news as a sign of these, this is how Christians behave, how would I choose to move forward? Because the unity really is to be a witness to the world. And what kind of a witness do we want to have and do we want to give to the world? There was a, a Christian leader, a writer, uh, Tertullian, and, and he, he was one of the first of what they call apologists. And so he, he, made, his, he, he made a part of his, his teaching about how do we convince the world about the things of God. And in one of his writings he says, it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See how they love one another, they say, for they themselves are animated by mutual hatred. Now, the question of the discussion is whether, whether Tertullian is actually quoting what people are saying about Christians or what he hopes people are saying about Christians. But he's recognizing the world that is full of mutual hatred needs to look and say, see how they love one another. And that's what Jesus was praying for from us. And, and there's all sorts of ways that we can respond to this sermon. And for myself, one of the ways I feel most convicted to respond is by confession. I say, I, I, I like to be right. And, and I'm going to argue if I'm not right. And maybe I've not held unity as important of a value as we're called to hold it. But there is a calling here to recognize that unity is our light to the world. In John 17, we learn that Jesus is faithfully completed his mission. He's done what he's been called to do, and he hands on the baton. He hands on the baton first to the disciples, and he says, love one another, be unified, be, be in the world, and, and be teaching the world. And then guess what's happened to that baton? It's been passed down generation to generation to generation, and now we're the remnant holding that baton, and the question is, will we be faithful to the calling to be a light and to be a witness to the world? May God bless us and protect us in the work of ministry that we do in this world. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and give peace to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And we go from here. Not unprotected, not vulnerable to the world's defeat, but we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, 
and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Uh, if you'd like to respond in any way, uh, I'll be in the back. Some of our shepherds will be in the back, but just invite you to come to the back while we stand and sing this song together. Let's stand.